another scripture quote from the forgotten Psalm 72. A good drummer, he is hard to find. He is worth more than rubies. And the entire worship team, that was awesome, awesome worship. Uh, and every week we have awesome worship here, but just it was just, yes, the Spirit of God is active and at work. On the screens right now is a different kind of spirit. That is the spirit of technology. If you'd scan this, those who are interested to add questions, we will have a panel upcoming here on this sermon entitled The Next Generations. And it's an ability to ask questions and to interact with those questions already submitted. There are some that come from a very high level and there's some very practical. All the questions will go through. We may not answer all of them in the two weeks we'll have panels, but next week we'll be focusing on the little ones and then in two weeks, we'll focus on the little bigger ones, uh, the teenagers, and talking through how, as a panel of people who have gone through this, how would they take some of these questions on in terms of both the theological and the very practical as well. Appreciative of the past 92 weeks, how many weeks were we on Jonah? 84 weeks we did on Jonah. Pastor Mike was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And I'm going to pat myself on the back saying that was a sermon that Pastor Mike was just made to teach on. It was so seamless and so good. Um, I wasn't looking for an applause for Mike, but we need to now. Mike, you're, you're okay. You're just, you're just fine. So that's good, as well you should be. Use the Connect cards as well if you're interested in, in submitting some questions if you're not sure how to use that QR code. But those QR codes are going to come off in a moment here because it's time to dump, jump into and have me preach on What's the problem and how do we get into giving our faith to the next generations? Next generations. It's not just one generation, but next generations. You don't have to be a parent or even know a child to have this be an important factor in the conversation that the church needs to have. And to get us into that mindset, I'm going to use an analogy, and that's on this term called basement. Basement. Does anybody know what that is in Florida? Yeah. Does anybody actually have a basement? I'm looking for anyone who has a basement. Raise your hand right now. Nobody? Okay. Oh, I have a couple. I have a couple. Okay. Here in the Midwest, we have these things called basements because there's tornadoes every other day and snowstorms, and they're just a place to hunker down because we're going to die because of the snow. Now, here's the issue. There's these ideas of like really making your basement posh. So I'm going to give you three examples to kind of inspire. What would your dream basement look like? Here's the first one. This is one that, that this is mine right here, okay? Now, the team is wrong. The team is wrong, but I just copied this off the internet, so don't judge me. The second one, this is, this is for some people who just like, oh, yeah, the cozy fire, the half windows because the rest of it's cement wall block. And then the last one, this is my nightmare. There's a gym inside my basement, okay? <laughs> Take a second to find someone you maybe not met before, introduce yourself, say welcome to E3, and share with them what is my dream basement? What is my dream basement? Ready, set, go.
I have the microphone. I have the power. You cannot be friendly anymore. No more friendliness. We're going to jump, jump forward because I have the microphone. I get to tell you about my dream basement. That was on the house, and this is the model of my house. This is also a toy that my daughter Lillian has that I'd like to, to, to break, but after I brought this to church, she said this is her most valuable toy, of course, because that's how six-year-olds run. This was my house in Lincoln, Nebraska, 1509 Skyline Drive. It is quaint. It is cute. It had a double-car garage with a snowblower in that I do not need to use anymore. Amen? <laughs> Rolled that thing in the garage sale pile, and I was like, goodbye, goodbye, snow. This is a model of that house. The issue we had in our basement, because it was my dream basement when we bought it, it had a place for the TV, it was carpeted, it had drywall, it had vents for air conditioning and heat. And what happened was, is that every rainstorm, there's just this little tiny section, about as big as where the music stand is, where we get wet. And we say, that's weird, but it's weird. And we're going to ignore it, because we have 10,000 other things to do in this brand new house, until two or three months later when a giant rainstorm of seven and a half inches came into Lincoln area. All of this rain came onto the roof and the prior owner wisely, put, trying to sell the house, put on new gutters and they only had one downspout for the entire side of one roof, okay? Now the water came off this side of the roof and down the gutter and into the yard and unbeknownst to us, there was a sinkhole that I just thought was a weird hole in the yard that occurred right over the sewer pipe place where the sewer pipe goes. And what we found out through weeks and months of trying to figure this out is that this sewer pipe that went out to the street actually functioned as a straw to get all of this water from our roof into our basement. And in that seven and a half inches of rain, you know where all that seven and a half inches of water went? Right up to here. Lost the entirety of it. Lost everything. Couches, furniture, drywall. I learned about these things called sump pumps, which are amazing pieces of, of engineering, but I hated it because I was literally shoveling out just buckets and buckets of water. We had all our carpet, which is actually functioning as a sponge. We're like, we've got to rip this out to try and save it. And once that was gone, that was our last hope. We lost the entire basement. It was complicated. It was unseen because the issue of what happened was that all this water went down here, functioned down on this side, and I kept looking over here to try and find the solution. I kept up here looking to find the solution. It took us months to figure out why we lost our basement. And in those months, I rebuilt it with these two hands. And some help, too. And some help, too. But I set toilets. I learned how to do drywall. We made two new bedrooms for our two big kids. And we were so thrilled that once we moved and sold the house, I thought that basement would be a great family place only to find out that the new owner completely destroyed it and started over from scratch. <laughs> home building and home owning fun. See, this, this connects, though, in passing down our faith to the next generation. Much of what we're going to do and talk about is unseen. We don't know the issues and how they're all interconnected, but they are unseen and completely interconnected. We know that life is so complicated and busy. And sometimes it takes several attempts that only end in disaster, only to find it being rebuilt and then being torn down yet again. But is it in this next generation we will find our future pastors, our leaders, our volunteers, missionaries, authors, and ironically, the ability to impact the next generation in 2060. And again, in 2100. 2100. How many of you are going to be around for that church service? Yeah, Some of you will but some of you won't. There are numerous cultures and subcultures that play into effect 
of this next generations. The largest challenge for us is that most of us can see that this idea of Christendom has ended. Now, for the topic today, Christendom is one of those topics and those terms that is very complicated. I'm calling it a culture of saying that the Christian values, in big quotation marks, okay, you see the quotation marks, everyone, the Christian values are the guiding values of our culture. That's our term we're using today. What guided culture for hundreds and thousands of years was a structure and protection and sometimes the abuse of those things that the church had over culture. Governments, armies, and autocrats came and went, but the church remained, and so people fled to the church for a guidance of what culture should look like, should be. And hundreds of years of having power not only caused a lot of corruption, but the culture in the post-Enlightenment eras have gradually shifted away from Christian values as the bedrock of our society. This is the main factor why so many Christians put on worldly political parties as their champion because it gives them the illusion that they can have power back. I'll say that again. The main factor why people put on Christian or of worldly political parties onto their Christianity is because it gives them the illusion that they have some sort of coercive power back. With Christendom ending, this morning we're going to find answers to keep the house of faith together and have it moving forward for the next generation. To the inheritors of our estate, that is all Christ's. For some, it is a threat that version of their church isn't guiding culture anymore. For others, this is a relief. Both of these groups have extreme voices in our world today. And there are numerous other seen and unseen issues in sake in our next generation. Simply saying that the church should have a larger role, place more signs with the Ten Commandments on the side of courthouses, or give them more Bible will solve the issue, will not work. It's like the well-meaning neighbor who I literally had who said that I must not have prayed right enough or led a good enough life for my disaster to fall upon me personally. Yeah, that felt great. Before jumping into these issues, let's step back a generation or two ago and take a look to realize what the ideas were at stake in those generations of trying to keep their faith going. I'm not saying these are wrong, but I'm saying there were issues a couple of generations ago. There are three main focuses, the first one being sexuality, the sex, second one being ethics, and the third one being biblical knowledge. In some senses, these all three have worked, as we've seen a generation ago sitting here. I'm putting myself in this category. I'm still feeling young, okay? Now, some of you can say, no, you're not. You're super old. Okay, that's fine. Thanks, middle schoolers. But in all honesty, these three focuses were fixes for the spiritual house going from one generation to the next. For terms of sexuality, it was an absolute loss of marriage integrity and a generation hooked on images from screens that undermined this quick fix. A generation ago was told to be pure and anything but heterosexual was bad. We see that in my analogy, it's like using asbestos, which is a great insulator. However, there are consequences when you only have exclusivism as your main focus for any theology. There's tons of destructive behaviors, both for anyone who identify in any sort of sexuality through that generation of strategy for the church. The second one was ethics. And we see that church leaders have never led a church astray by not having a good ethic in leading their church. That's sarcasm. Thank you, Mike. This is, this is a dark sermon. I'm gonna try and put in little blitz of, uh, of sarcasm. In my analogy, it's like a salesman who tried to get us to buy an overhauled sump pump that wouldn't have fixed the problem because the water kept coming in, 
It just would suck out the water and place it into our neighbor's basement who also had the same thing happen to them. This idea of saying, be holy, be holy, while I am not holy, while I am doing horrible things on the side. And trust me, we are all sinners. We are all in need of God's grace. But there is a level of ethics that the leaders have to show for their words to have any sort of authority. And that just didn't happen. Thirdly, biblical knowledge. I remember the challenges to know my Bible forwards and backwards and to memorize large swaths of the Bible. And yet I had no idea what the culture or why they said what they said in the Bible itself. Who was Timothy? Who was Titus that Paul was writing to? Why are these people important? What caused them to do what they did? And why does it matter to me today in a culture that's so far removed that we have microwaves and we have cars and we have phones? And how does that even impact me? The fact of the matter is, is that while Dan did a great job reading that passage, we can also point out to the fact that any passage, though all is good for equipping the saints, can also be used for great evil, right? And that's a hard thing to preach on because I love the Bible. And yes, we should use it, and we should memorize large swaths of Scripture, but we also have to have the reason and the teaching and the discipleship to understand how to apply it correctly, safely, and godly in our own lives. In some ways, we see that all of this work was done reactionary or maybe somewhat short-sightedly, but in other ways, there's a giant effort and a giant focus to pass down the faith from one generation to the next in a world that did not make sense to those who had it before. So I'm not calling out that anybody did anything wrong, no. We see that the challenge for the next generation of the faith is this. The methods to pass down our faith today have fundamentally changed for a majority of Americans. And even more so in the past three years with the pandemic. But we also have to address the remnants of failed passing in many ways of faith. Sex and ethics are still problems, huge problems. Biblical illiteracy is not just the largest problem of those coming up to church. It is the church has no way to engage helping whatever situation they are in. People come looking for a miracle, and we've forgotten how to meet people where they are, how they are, and then let the word do its work. We see that, and we have so many other issues of race, denominationalism, greed, corruption, sexual promiscuity. I'm feeling great about this, guys. We're going to keep going. Politicization. And to be real, many people just view Christianity as some sort of old-fashioned ethic that doesn't apply to my life anymore. It, it, it just blows my mind that I, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You know that phrase. You've already heard the sermon. Most of you are falling asleep, as most people in choirs do in churches. But <laughs> trying to keep it lively, folks. This is a sad sermon. But in all honesty... There are hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in this city alone that look at us like fools. I believe a Jewish carpenter died for my sins. I do. And I believe it is through that Jewish carpenter that all of us can have everlasting life. And I believe Christianity has a vibrancy and an ethic to it that can inspire the next generation and see a revolution and a revival in people's spiritual lives. Out of the three ways the prior generation worked in knowing what is needed, I want to give three ideas of main issues in our proverbial home that deserve time and consideration and knowing that the panels in the next two weeks will all focus on these. The first one is curriculum and method. Curriculum and method by giving the next generation faith. 
For decades, Sunday school and curriculum were the key components for equipping the next generation. Having a classroom-like setting for an hour on Wednesday and an hour on Sunday for children and teens who come out of 40 out of 52 weeks per year worked. They're getting to hear the Bible 80-some times during a given week. But today, because of the pandemic, but because of just life in general, the number hovers around 10 out of 52 weeks a child will come to church. I'm not talking to y'all. You're all the choir. You're here every week. None of you skip a week, right? That also is sarcasm, okay? It's important to realize there is a balance in life. that You just can't coming back to church every single day. If you come to church every single day like I do, we'll put you on payroll. <laughs> the teacher teaching 100% of the time makes or breaks any curriculum, no matter how great or how poor. And we see that the curriculum does not equal authenticity in giving this faith to the next generation. It is a person giving it to them. Jesus himself proved innovation in teaching unlearned, illiterate outcasts alongside learned Pharisees like Nicodemus. He met them where they were one-on-one and then encouraged them to do the same with those in their community. There were sermons on the mount for thousands of people and then there were moments of just three who had a different level of engagement as he passed along the faith to them. And then we see, as Dan read, Paul giving the faith to Timothy through letters. And then generations after that, giving the same mentality, that it's a one-on-one process, and at times it blows up into larger groups. What we need to realize is that using the world's methods of curriculum and method do not necessarily mean the best way to pass along our faith to the next generation. Meeting the next generations where they are, engaging in their life, helping with ethics, stretching their own worldviews, and growing together is more effective and more holistically Christian than churning out similar-shaped Christians. It's my hope to see unique leaders of the next generation just as diverse as those of the very first Pentecost. We see that what our spiritual house needs when we need to give to the next generation is a whole new electric and plumbing redo. And those who know about houses and those who don't know about houses When you redo the plumbing and electricity, it is a huge investment. And it is annoying because you tend to hide all those things behind drywall and behind all the painting you've done for years. And when you start ripping apart the insides, it feels like your whole life is asunder and there's a layer of drywall dust over everything, right? The idea of doing this is not going to be easy. And in fact, it'll be discombobulated where sometimes we'll have to do one room and we have to move everything into the other room. And then once we get to that room, what do we have to do with the stuff? Move it to the next room. Yeah, yeah. I'm making everybody tired of this one I'm doing this morning. <laughs> Second one, we are being reshaped. The challenge is being reshaped by technology and drugs. This challenge is more unique as a Christian faith. It says very little about the invention and pursuit of new knowledge outside of very perplexing book of Revelation, which we will not be preaching on tomorrow. And the Tower of Babel. That's a great story. People, people build this giant tower and God's like, oh, no, I'm going to confuse them. They can't have anything cool. It's a, I know, like, <laughs> I know it's not. But that's the only ways I can think about inventing, using new technology from a biblical narrative. Technology growth has plotted along with very little reflection outside of some moments of brief pause. So to enter into 2023, we have some new and some old issues in this realm. Artificial intelligence, 
Pretty soon you can ask ChatGTP to give me a sermon and it'll be better what I'm doing today. I asked ChatGTPT to write a giving letter about a church who's struggling financially and friends, it was 10 times better than any letter I've ever written. I'm looking for a job as I speak, okay? But, but all of this, you say it now, but wait, wait, just wait, just wait. The second issue in this, in this era, area is that we are so much dopamine-brained that there are these great things called video games, and I love them so much. Me and Mario have a special relationship, okay? We beat King Koopa, and I get this rush of dopamine. Same with any sort of NCAA football game I'm a master at. Galaga? You remember old school Galaga? Yeah, yeah. Pac-Man, Mrs. Pac-Man? Mrs. Pac-Man's the bomb because it goes faster than Pac-Man. All of this is just dopamine in our brains. And they're seeing that actually we are seeing a change in the physical structure of our brains in a very weird way. We're over-dopamining them. And people are actually changing the way they think because of all the ways in which we have all the technology and all the games. We have the ability to be a 10-minute expert on almost everything, including home renovations. And the entire world is at anyone's fingertips. Obviously, the war on drugs in the U.S. has been lost. And I'm not just talking about the common drugs, but we're talking about drugs like sugar, carbs, caffeine, alongside vapes, marijuana, and narcotics in alarming amounts. The next generation, ironically, uses the physical world's means to enter into a spiritual moment. We use the, spiritual world, the physical world's means to enter into a spiritual moment. Instead of trying to enter in the spiritual world, to enter into a spiritual moment. And there are very good drugs. And there is very good technology. But we have to understand how to interact and pass down a faith to a new generation that is so overwhelmed in these areas with very little safeguards. The next generation will have abilities to use both technology and drugs to reshape humanity at its core, and in some ways to feel godlike. If you think what is scary is now, there is things coming that will make and transform the way in which humanity functions at a very basic level. Gene mutations, picking which color eyes your baby has. There's all sorts of things that horror movies love to pick on, but the church will not engage. It's one of my goals personally to have sermons that reflect the emerging world just as we are living in the current world right now. What we have in this new house is that it's a smart house. And I love my smart house because when I'm on a plane, states away, I can turn on the AC and good Lord, that is heaven. When you walk into a house that you don't have to pay our AC for for two weeks on. But there's also at the same time an infestation of rodents and all sorts of other creepy crawlies that we do not like and we need to get rid of. They're both and in terms of my analogy by tech and drugs. Third, we live in a very big and scary world. Never has a world been so large and so scary alongside both so intimate and beautiful. Globalization has some startling consequences. Climate change, obviously, is one that we are focused with both here and across the globe. And we live in a world that has been so shaped by a pandemic that we still have some anxieties about coming into public places about getting too close to a stranger I may not know? Do I need the delicacies and efficiencies of living in this global world? Are we bloating ourselves into some sort of destructive stupor? Or do we have a God who wants us so much more interconnected in a way that we can really 
take on the world as the world and not try and save the world as some sort of local municipality? I don't know. But I want to have the next generation equipped with the ideas of what this will mean. See, this house is not just 200 square feet. This house, according to the big and scary world we're giving them, is 5,000 square feet house. And a 5,000 square feet house sounds awesome until you have to clean it, until you have to furnish it, until you have to make sure that every single speck of the house has some sort of overriding management being done to it. And those who have a 5,000 square foot house, God bless you and keep you, and that's awesome. But if I had one, I'd need a couple of different helpers to get me through that. Now, the question is, is, and this is where I wanted to do with this, but Lily would not let me do this. Should we just break the house and start over? I literally put, should we burn the house down in the, in the notes? And I was planning to start fire, but that, apparently I can't do that here at Element 3 Church. No. No. This is not just bleak, end-of-the-world sermon. Although sometimes that's needed in our lives. But I'm giving you these points of what's been done in the past generation and what we're currently facing because we have to do some really deep soul-searching here as a community about the tools in which we can give this house in some sort of shape that the next generations can continue it on. I want to give you two helpers who are expert handymen and know exactly how to take not only a flooded basement, but all the issues we have here and do it exceptionally well. Let me introduce you to this guy named Authenticity. Authenticity means I am who I am all the time. Whew. He's a great guy. Sometimes he's kind of brash and kind of rude, but he's always the same. And he comes with a dash of humility that we don't know exactly where we're to go with things like technology, with all the different world interconnectedness. But we don't even know what we're doing necessarily with all our sexuality. I'm humbly just admitting that. But I also have to come with the fact that authenticity is going to be with a person and be transformed alongside the person together with the spirit of God and the word of God working in in that relationship all together. The second one is a deep faith. My alma mater in terms of my master divinity came from this place called Asbury Seminary. And I want to share the story. Asbury University had a revival occur just about a week and a half ago where at their chapel service, they had not only hundreds of people come, but now they've had thousands of people come across the world. And this worship service has lasted for over a week and a half. You don't know what you signed up for this morning in E3 Church. (laughs) The point of this is that the spirit is still alive and active. And this generation is hungry, hungry. For God, God to work and transform and break something beautiful out of whatever we've inherited. We are hungry, and this next generation is hungry for a spirituality that is authentic and deep. See, when I come to commit to walking alongside a child at their baptism, when they're in fourth grade, and to guide their faith through their teen years, through mistakes and heartache, through raucous successes, how does that break the Sunday school model but enhance their faith for longevity? When my faith is secure enough that I can both discern the good in technology and reject the bad, what can I say to this team who worries that the world will end in so many new and creative ways? Because there's an anxiety about them. 
in a world where everyone has an avatar, and I don't actually know really anyone maybe deeply in, in a relationship concept, would authentically sharing myself in a growth group or just with a church in general or with a team, with your full story, promote them to be known in a world that is too big to comprehend? And lastly, can we design services, interactions, lessons, and make room for God's spirit and God's word to do a miracle that no drug can touch in the deepness of the faith moment? My question is, church, how can we be a blessing, blessing relationally in the direction of our faith to the next generation to then look back at us and remember how faith-filled we are? As I close, we must pause and consider the irony that will work for one child and one teen will not necessarily work with another. But it is a commitment to not produce more photocopied suburban sprawls and to design a house to include all those who come through our doors, to walk alongside them in designing a spiritual home that all will grow, all will engage this world and its challenges, and all will come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's stand and worship.